This is the 2017 Manitoulin Family Bible Camp. Our speaker this evening is Brother Bernard Burt from uh, Coventry, UK. And his subject this evening is Inspiration, How the Old Testament Scriptures Were Compiled. Our reading was taken from Deuteronomy chapter 31. Brother Bernard. Good evening, my beloved brothers and sisters and young people. This subject we're going to look at tonight is a really, really fundamental foundation subject. It underpins really all the other subjects that we're looking at in Bible camp. And our objective tonight is to look at the 39 books of the Old Testament and ask two questions. When were the Old Testament books written and who wrote these books? Now, obviously, the ultimate answer to the second question is God wrote them. But that's not what man thinks today. There are two views around on the authorship and the compilation of the books of the Old Testament. There is the view of the flesh and there is the view of the spirit. Let's start with the view of the spirit. This is what we as a community have believed and taught for decades the foundation statement of the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith, that the Bible is the only source of knowledge that we have in the world. The writings of the Bible were wholly given by inspiration of God in the writers and are consequently without error. And that's where we as a community have stood. But now the, the fleshly view of things is coming into the ecclesia and it's affecting brothers and sisters. And the fleshly view is that we just have to accept the current academic consensus view of scholars on the authorship and the dating of the books of the Old Testament. Because they've done all the research, they've got access to all the documents, they've got all the qualifications to do these things, therefore we must just simply accept what they say. But that's the thinking of man, it's the thinking of the flesh, and we need to beware of it. We don't have to look far to find out what this view is. All all I did was typed into into Google, dating the Bible. Uh, And I came up with an article on Wikipedia with that title. And the current academic consensus view is that the books of the Bible were written over five separate periods of time. So we start with what they call the monarchical period, the period when there were kings reigning over Israel and Judah. And they assign to this period the date 745 to 586 BC. 586 BC is the date of the fall of Jerusalem in the 11th year of King Zedekiah. 745 BC is round about the reign of Jotham, the grandfather of Hezekiah. So what they're saying is that there was no book of the Bible written before the time of Jotham. And during that period, most of the Psalms in the first two-thirds of the book were written. Um, Just turn to Psalm 90, please. 
and have a look at the title. Because that straight away does not fit with this theory of the critics. All of the Psalms titles, not all of the Psalms have titles, but all of the titles of the Psalms are part of the inspired scripture. There's an easy way to demonstrate that, which I'm happy to show anybody afterwards. So, Psalm 90, the title. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. But according to this view, the Psalms weren't written until way, way after the death of Moses. Who are we going to believe? The Bible or the critics? First half of Amos was written during this period. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah... Uh, the prophecies of Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. That's how it started. And then, during the reign of Josiah, part of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and Deuteronomy chapters 5 to 26. So when Hilkiah, according to this view, found the book in the temple, it wasn't an ancient book that had been written by Moses. It was a book on which the ink was hardly dry. It had been written in the time of Josiah and, and, and put on a shelf in the temple somewhere. So that's the first period, the monarchical period. Then there is the period of the exile, after they were carried away into Babylon and before the decree of Cyrus, which enabled them to come back. The core of Obadiah... How do you have the core of a book that's only 21 verses long? The core of Obadiah was written during this period. First four chapters and the last few two chapters of, of Deuteronomy... The rest of Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings. The early versions of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55. We'll focus in particularly on Isaiah later on. And then there's the time after the exile. When they've come back from Babylon. The time of Joshua and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And during that period, they believe. Genesis to Numbers were written from various sources. Deuteronomy was revised and expanded. The third part of Isaiah was written. The later part of Jeremiah. Haggai, Zechariah, first eight chapters, and then somehow or other, 100 years later, the rest of the book. Malachi. Chronicles. Very late, after the exile. The origins of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we come into the, the Hellenistic period, the period of the Greeks, the time of... Alexander the Great, down to the time of the Maccabees. The book of Job, which we might have, might have thought was a very early book. book of Job, book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Clearly they don't believe that those books had anything at all to do with Solomon. Jonah, they say, that was written at this time, but it's a fictional work. Can we turn to Matthew chapter 12 and just seek the opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ on that point? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Who are we going to believe? The Lord Jesus Christ, who testified to the existence 
and the preaching of Jonah or this group of academics who think they know when the word of God was written. And the final third of Psalms. And then we come to the Maccabean period from 164 BC, time of Judas Maccabeus, down to the time of Herod the Great. During that period, the book of Daniel was written. In 163 BC, they're very precise about this, and we'll see the reason later, and the book of Esther. Why do they come to these conclusions? Because they don't believe that the Bible is a revelation from God. They believe that the Bible is an ancient Near Eastern document, like the Gilgamesh epic, which is the Babylonian version of the flood. They don't believe in prophecy. So all books which speak of historical events must date after those events. They can't possibly prophesy that those events are going to come to pass. Now, we, brothers and sisters, young people, believe the Bible is the word of God. And we would advance prophecy as a proof of that. The discoveries of archaeology, the way that the different parts of the Bible fit together in a way that they would never do if they were written by different human authors over a long period of time. So what we're going to do now in this class is we're going to work our way through the Old Testament in the order that we have it, looking for internal evidence, evidence within the Bible as to when these books were written and who wrote them. So we're asking the question, well, what does God say? So let's start in the book of Galatians, the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 8. Now clearly this isn't the Old Testament, but there is a wonderful reference here to the writing of part of the Old Testament. So Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, and the apostle is writing here about Abraham. So verse 8 of Galatians 3, and the scripture, Greek graphe, the writing, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now the last words of that verse are a quotation from Genesis chapter 12. And if we strip this verse down to its bare essentials, it is saying, The writing told Abraham the good news that all nations would be blessed in him. So Abraham had Genesis chapter 12 as a written scripture in his own lifetime. And from it he learned the gospel. And the text of Genesis says that he then went and preached to the local Amorites and brought them into the covenant. Romans chapter 4. Here's another reference in the New Testament to the writing of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 4 and verse 21. Again, it's about Abraham. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it, his faith, was imputed to Abraham for righteousness. Now, says the apostle, and he's writing under the direction of the Spirit of God. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So what Romans 4 is telling us is that 
Galatians, sorry, Genesis 15, verse 6, which is the verse that's quoted, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The Genesis 15, verse 6, as well as being written for our sakes, was also written for Abraham's sake. So Abraham had Genesis 15 in his Bible. And that's confirmed for us if we turn now to James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, James is writing about the faith of Abraham and how that faith was made perfect in the, the work that he did in being willing to offer his son Isaac upon the altar. James chapter 2 and verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified or accounted righteous by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect and the scripture, the writing, was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now you can't fulfill a scripture that isn't written. James chapter 2 verse 23 presupposes that Genesis 15 verse 6 existed before Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah. And when Isaac demonstrated his faith by his works, James says he fulfilled that scripture. So who might have written those scriptures? Well, who normally wields the pen? Prophets. A whole series of books in the Old Testament written by prophets. And there are many other people in the Old Testament who are called prophets. So here's a list of prophets in the book of Genesis. Adam was a prophet. Because the words that Genesis says that he spoke in Genesis 2.24 are attributed to God by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. So Adam was speaking God's words. Jesus in Luke 11 tells us that Abel was a prophet, although we don't have a single word recorded in the Bible that Abraham spoke, that Abel spoke. Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet, seventh from Adam. Noah was a prophet. He spoke prophetically concerning his sons. Abraham was a prophet. God says so, as was Sarah. Psalm 105, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. It's a quotation from Genesis chapter 20. And Galatians chapter 4 tells us that words that Sarah spoke were scripture. Isaac was a prophet. Jacob was a prophet. And Joseph, as we've seen in one of our classes this week, was a prophet. So you've got a whole line of prophets and it's an almost continuous line for 2,370 years from the creation to the death of Joseph apart from one little gap of three years between the death of Noah and the birth of Abraham. God had a prophet in the earth throughout all of that period. Just three years. So God never left himself without witness. Right, let's go back to Genesis now and have a look at the internal evidence. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. Little details within the book. So Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. That's the normal Hebrew word for book, as in Nahum 1 verse 1, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. 
So why couldn't Adam have written a book? God created him very good, as we saw this morning. And all the events that are recorded in Genesis 1-4 to could have been written by Adam. Clearly he would have had to have revealed to him the things that happened before God created him. But all the events of putting him into the Garden of Eden and God speaking to him and creating the woman and the conversations with the serpent and God's verdict upon them. And all the events of Genesis chapter 4 and the line of Cain going down to Tubal and Jabal and Jubal Cain all happened within the lifetime of Adam. He was contemporary with them. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 19. Here in Genesis chapter 10 we have the list of the nations who descended from the sons of Noah by whom the whole earth was overspread, says the text. And we've got more than the list of the nations. We've got some detail. Verse 19 of Genesis 10. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as thou comest to Gera unto Gaza as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboam even unto Larsa. By the time of Genesis 19, you couldn't go to Sodom and Gomorrah. They'd been destroyed by fire and brimstone falling from the Lord out of heaven. They've gone. But when Genesis 10 was written, you could take a tour around the borders of the Canaanites and in doing that you'd pass through Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboam. The high critics have concluded that the book of Genesis is a composite document written by a number of different authors and then brought together by an editor. I agree with them, except I don't agree with their dates. I believe that the book of Genesis was written by contemporary prophets, and there's the list of them. No, it isn't. That's the next bit. Yes, it is. Sorry. There's the list of them. And that those prophecies were collected and brought together and formed into the book of Genesis as we have it by Moses. At the very time of which we read in Deuteronomy 31, when he finished the book of the law and handed it to the Levites to keep. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Because there's a couple of interesting geographical references there. Genesis chapter 50 records the taking of the coffin of Jacob up into the land and the burying of it in the cave of Machpelah. So as a great company goes out of Egypt to bury Jacob. And verse 10 of Genesis chapter 50 says, They came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. And there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning in the floor... Where did the Canaanites live? The Canaanites lived on the west side of the Jordan River. They did not live on the east side. The east side was inhabited by Edom and Ammon and Moab and Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Canaanites lived on the west. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the floor of Atab, they said... This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians, wherefore the name of it was called Abel Mitzraim, which is beyond Jordan. So the person who put that detail in must have been dwelling at that time on the east side of Jordan. That's exactly where Moses was in Deuteronomy 31 
when the text that we've just read says he finished the book of the law and handed it over to the Levites. And there are a number of little geographical inserts like that in the text of Genesis. As if Moses is saying to his people, and when you get over Jordan and you want to take a tour of the patriarchs, you know, th- these are the places to go and this is where they are. This is where you'll find them. Let's move on now into Exodus. And Exodus 16 records the giving of the manna. And the giving of the manna was such a significant event in Israel that Aaron was told to take a pot, which Hebrews tells us was a golden pot, and fill it with manna to be preserved for their generations, that the future generations might know the bread God gave them in the wilderness. And Aaron was to put that pot of manna in a very, very special place. Exodus 16 and verse 33. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before Yahweh. So that's where he's got to put it. He's got to put it before Yahweh to be kept for your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron laid laid it up before the testimony to be kept. That's where he put it. So what was the testimony? Well, it's exactly the same word that's used to describe the tables of stone which God was later to give to Moses. God hadn't given Moses the tables of stone at this point. They hadn't even got to Sinai. It's the same word that's used when young Joash was crowned king at seven years old. And they put the crown on his head and they put the testimony in his hand. It's the word of God. It's the scriptures. So when Aaron is to put this golden pot of manna in a very special place before Yahweh, he puts it before the testimony, before the scriptures. So before they've even got to Sinai, before Moses has written the law, they have their scriptures. Those scriptures were essentially, I believe, what we call the book of Genesis. The scriptures of the patriarchs, which they had brought out of Egypt, written by contemporary prophets. And they had that very, very special place right in the centre of the camp of Israel. So let's move on now to the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the other four so-called books of Moses. The critics used to say, oh, these books couldn't have been written by Moses because Moses couldn't write. They don't say that anymore because they now know that writing was current in the time of Abraham. People were writing invoices, bills of lading, receipts and all sorts of commercial documents. Writing was in common use in the time of Abraham in that civilization. So the critics changed their tack and they always do. And this is the problem with the current academic consensus view. It keeps on changing because it's the mind of man. God doesn't change. So they can't say Moses didn't write these books. So then they said, well, no, Moses didn't write these books because the ideas in this law are far too advanced for the time. Um, excuse me, but this is, happens to be a revelation from God. But they can't even say that now because archaeologists have discovered the law of Hammurabi and the law of the Horites. Now, if you look at those laws, they are clearly the writing of men because the quality of the laws is vastly inferior to the laws that we have in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. But they are still extensive codes of law covering all aspects of everyday and national life. 
So the critics can't say, oh, well, you know, there was nothing like that around at the time, because there was. Lord of Moses is far superior, but it was there. So, Moses' writing. There are, according to my reckoning, in the Old Testament, 24 references, and in the New Testament, 9 references to Moses' writing. So there's a collection of them up on the screen. We're just going to look at the ones that I've underlined. So let's start, we're almost in Exodus 17. Let's start with Exodus 17, verse 14. Here's the earliest reference to Moses' writing. So they've just defeated the Amalekites. Exodus 17, verse 14. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So God tells Moses, write all this down and read it to Joshua. Let's go to our reading now, Deuteronomy 31. I wonder if you noticed, as we read through Deuteronomy 31 through Brother Chris, just how many references there are in there to Moses' writing. So Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and unto all the elders of Israel. Verse 22. Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it the children of Israel. Verse 24. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites which bear the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So Moses wrote, says Deuteronomy. Let's go on now to the second book of Chronicles and chapter 25. And we come into the time of the kings of Judah to Amaziah and his son Azariah or Uzziah. So Amaziah comes to the throne. Second uh, Chronicles 25, verse 1, Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign. And verse 3, it came to pass when the kingdom was established to him that he slew his servants that had killed the king his father. But he slew not their children, but did as it is written in the law in the book of Moses, where Yahweh commanded, saying, The fathers shall not die for the children, neither shall the children die for their fathers, but every man shall die for his own sin. But according to the current academic consensus, none of the books of Moses were written in the time of Amaziah. They come much later. Not what God's telling us. Nehemiah chapter 8 is, is our next reference. Nehemiah chapter 8, they built the wall, 52 days. And just a few days later, when they've straightened their backs and washed their clothes, they all gather together. And they say to Ezra, bring out the book of the law and read it. We want to hear the word of God. So as, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man. They were united in their desire to hear the word. Into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe. To bring the book of the law of Moses. Which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation. And he read therein. So Nehemiah is testifying. Moses wrote the law. Just one more, one New Testament one. John chapter 5, verse 
46. I love this one. This this is my favourite of all this sequence of verses. John chapter 5. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? So there's our choice. Do we believe the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we believe the academics? Because Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. So not only did Moses write, but Moses wrote prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the internal evidence of the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the king of Israel was to write himself a copy of the law. According to today's view, the law wasn't even written until after the last king had been deposed. But uh, there we are. Let's move on now to the historical books. The books from Joshua to Chronicles. So Moses wrote this book of the law. We're going back to Joshua chapter 1. And Joshua had his own copy. So Deuteronomy chapter, sorry, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 7. And here's God speaking to Joshua. Joshua 1 verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. Written therein. Notice. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, then shalt thou have good, good success. Joshua, you've got to do your readings. Every day, every night, you've got to read your Bible. Book of Moses. Let's move on now to Joshua chapter 18 and verse 9. And they're now dividing up the land among the tribes. And they've got to separate the rest of the land into seven parts to give the last seven tribes their inheritance. So men are appointed to do this. Verse 8 of Joshua 18. And the men arose and went away, and Joshua charged them that went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it, and come again unto me, that I may here cast lots for you before Yahweh in Shiloh. And the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities into seven parts in a book. And they came again to Joshua, to the host at Shiloh. So the people weren't dependent on their memories. As they went around the land, they wrote it all down. And they described it into seven portions. And the record which had been written out by Moses continued to be updated. Joshua 24 now, the end of the life of Joshua. And Joshua gathers all the people to Shechem. Verse 25 of Joshua 24 And Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak 
which was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. So Joshua's continuing on the record. He's extending the scroll. He's adding his words to the words of Moses. And Samuel did the same thing. Let's move on to 1 Samuel in chapter 10. Here we come to another great prophet. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in, revised version margin, the book, and laid it up before Yahweh. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. So Samuel's continuing the record. Let's now move on into the time of the kings and go to the last chapter of the first book of Chronicles. First Chronicles 29 and 29. And what we're going to do now, we're going to track through the book of Chronicles and we're going to see what Chronicles says that prophets wrote about these various kings. Okay, so first Chronicles 29, 29. Now the acts of David, the king, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. Now that's perfectly understandable, because it was Samuel that anointed David, it was Nathan who came to David in the matter of Bathsheba, and it was Gad who came to David in in the matter of the numbering of the people. So those prophets were, were clearly around in the time of David. And the chronicler, whoever he is, and we'll come to that later, the chronicler says that they all wrote about David. Okay, let's move on now to 2 Chronicles 29, sorry, 2 Chronicles 9 and verse 29, and we come to the end of the reign of Solomon. 2 Chronicles 9, 29. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet? Well, yes. He was the one who named Solomon Jedidiah. And in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, he was the one who told Jeroboam that God would give ten ten tribes to him. He would become king over part of Israel. And in the visions of Iddo the seer against Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So there we've got two more prophets, Ahijah and Iddo, who wrote in the time of Solomon. Uh, Move on now to chapter 12 and verse 15. The end of the reign of the next king, Rehoboam. Now the acts of Rehoboam first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet and in the book of Iddo the seer concerning genealogies? So there's another prophet, Shemaiah, added to the list. And Iddo. And Iddo is mentioned again in in, uh, chapter 13 and verse 22 at the end of the reign of Abijah. His deeds are written in the story of the prophet Ida. Let's move on now to chapter 16 and verse 11, where we come to the end of the reign of Asa, and it's a bit different here. Chapter 16, verse 11, And behold the acts of Asa first and last, lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So we haven't got a prophet name now, we've got a book. The book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And we've already had David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa reigning over this people. So now a book's being compiled. 
Turn to chapter 20 and verse 34. And here's a verse we need to read very carefully. So here we now come to the end of the next king, Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 34. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Jehu the son of Hanani, and notice the margin, who was mentioned, Hebrew was made to ascend into the book of the kings of Israel. So we've got Jehu the son of Hanani, who wrote about Jehoshaphat, and his writing was made to ascend into the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So there's somebody there with the oversight, deciding which writings of which prophets are going to be included in what we might call the official record of the dealings of the kings of Judah and Israel. And this writing of Jehu the son of Hanani is deemed to be a genuine prophecy. So it's made to ascend into the book that's being compiled of the deeds of the kings of Judah and Israel. Now come to chapter 32 and verse 32. And the window opens a little wider for us to see through it. We come now to the reign of Hezekiah. And again, read carefully. 2 Chronicles 32, 32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And as we shall see in a minute or two, there are sections in the historical part of Isaiah, chapters 36, 37, 38 and 39, which are word for word identical with sections in the second book of Kings. Clearly, Isaiah was the author of that part of what we call Second Kings. And this verse is telling us that that portion was called the vision of Isaiah because they didn't have Bibles with chapters and numbers like we do. So they could turn to a verse. They had names for portions of scripture. And that portion of the book of the kings of Judah and Israel was called the vision of Isaiah because Isaiah was the prophet who penned it under the hand of God. So we can add Isaiah to our list And then we could also add Jeremiah because there are sections of Jeremiah 52 which appear word for word toward the end of the second book of Kings concerning the end of the kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah was clearly the author of that last part of second Kings. So the books, the four books of Samuel and Kings as we have them are clearly ascribed within the scriptures to Samuel, Nathan, Gad, Ahijah, Ido, Shemiah, Jehu, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophets who under the direction of God wrote what he wanted writing about the deeds of these various kings. So there's the parallels between 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 20 and Isaiah 36, 37, 38 and 39. And if you parallel those two, you'll find they're clearly the work of the same author. And similarly with Jeremiah, there's the parallelism between 2 Kings 24 and 25 and parts of Jeremiah 52. So there's the books of Samuel and Kings. 
Now, what about the books of Chronicles? Well, turn to right to the end of the second book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 22. 2 Chronicles 36, 22, and we read there, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout his, all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia etc. They're identical. The last two verses of 2 Chronicles are identical with the opening words of the book of Ezra. So clearly it was Ezra who completed the record in Chronicles. And what was Ezra? Ezra was a priest. And when you look at the books of Chronicles, you'll find that's the focus. The focus of the book of Chronicles is on Jerusalem and the temple and those kings of Judah who repaired and beautified and worshipped in the temple. Men like Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah. But by contrast, there's no mention of the sin of David in Chronicles because David couldn't go to any priest and say... um, I've committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. What what sacrifice should I offer? Because the law prescribed death for those offences. So it was nothing to do with the priest. It was through the prophet Nathan that God sought and obtained the repentance of David and, and forgave him his sin. So if we look at the language of the second of the books of Chronicles and compare it with the language of Samuel and Kings, we find a very significant difference. So the word prophet occurs 95 times in Samuel and Kings, but only 29 times in the books of Chronicles. And most of those are the passages we looked at. Now the words of David, Nathan the prophet and Gad the prophet write, and Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah the prophet. Whereas by contrast, Levites are only mentioned three times in the four books of Samuel and Kings and a hundred times in the books of Chronicles. The focus of Chronicles is on the temple and its service and everything appertaining to it. So I believe that these records of Chronicles were written by men like Ezra, who were priests, whose focus was in Jerusalem and the temple. And they, under the hand of God, recorded that aspect of the history of his people. So let's move on now. What about the Psalms? Well, we've seen the view of the world about psalms. What does the scripture say? There are seven psalms of David. They're on the screen. 2, 16, 32, 69, 95, 109 and 110. Seven psalms of David. They're either, we're told in the Old Testament or the New Testament that they are Davidic psalms. And five of them, the ones marked PP, contain predictive prophecy. And the New Testament endorses all of them that they were written by David. So the claim that the Psalms were not written or collected until about 200 BC is refuted. Who are we going to believe? Jesus and his apostles or the scholars? So what about Isaiah? In my youth, say 50 years ago, 
the current academic consensus view was that Isaiah was written by two people. There was Isaiah himself who wrote the first 39 chapters and what was called Deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah, who wrote from chapters 40 to 66. They'd moved on from that then. They, they now believe there were three Isaiahs. 1 to 39, 40 to 53, 54 to 66. But again, what saith the scripture? If you do a word search on the word Isaiah, which is the Greek form of the um, Hebrew word Isaiah, you will find 22 passages in the New Testament where Isaiah is mentioned. And every single one of them is introducing a quotation from what we call the book of Isaiah. And this is what happens when you look at them carefully. There are ten of them which introduce quotations from the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, so-called first Isaiah. I'll put three there on the screen. There are nine of them which introduce quotations from what the critics call Deutero-Isaiah. There's two of them on the screen. And there are three of them which introduce quotations from so-called Trito-Isaiah, the third so-called Isaiah. But the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles call every single one of them Isaiah. To the Lord and his apostles, there is only one Isaiah. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, 70th anniversary this year, the two most complete scrolls were scrolls of Isaiah. And they were complete. And chapter 40 follows straight on in the same column from chapter 39. There is no break. There is no indication that there was any change of authorship whatsoever. So who's right? The New Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls, or the critics? Let's move on now to the prophecy of Daniel. Some of you may have that on your shelves at home. Collins' New Atlas of the Bible. Pretty innocuous book, you might think. You know, what can go wrong with a Bible atlas? Maps showing us where the various cities are, or at least where they thought they were, etc., etc. But when you open that book, you find there are far more than maps. There's a lot of details about the Bible and its history and who wrote it and when. See, the book of Daniel is, is a huge problem to the critics because it's absolutely full of predictive prophecy, which critics don't accept. So this is their solution, and you'll find this in Collins' New Bible Atlas. The book of Daniel was not written by Daniel in Babylon, 500 BC at all. The book of Daniel was written, they say, by a Jew in Jerusalem in 163 BC. He was a very clever Jew. He got a very old piece of parchment, and he wrote on it the text of the book of Daniel in two different languages, and the critics can't really explain why he should write it in two different languages, which is the way the book of Daniel is written. And he wrote it all up, and he waited till the ink was thoroughly dry, 
And then he rushed out into the streets of Jerusalem with this scroll and said to his fellow Jews, look what I've found. I've found this ancient prophecy written by Daniel, who was a captive of Nebuchadnezzar, written in Babylon over 300 years ago, which prophesied the rise and fall of all these kingdoms and prophesied us in our battle against the Greeks and that we would win. So get on with it, brothers, and fight the Greeks because this ancient book that I've just discovered, written... um, says that we're going to win. That's what you'll find in Collins' new Bible Atlas and, and most other modern commentaries on the book of Daniel. There's a big problem with that. Turn to Mark chapter 13. Here's the Olivet prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 13 and verse 14. Jesus speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus is endorsing that Daniel wrote that prophecy. Um, But he's only doing that if you've got in front of you the authorised version, the New King James Version, or Young's Literal. Because all the other modern translations that I've checked leave out of Mark 13, verse 14, the words spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Because there was a guy called Marcion the heretic who flourished in the early years of so-called Christianity who didn't like prophecy. And he went around cutting bits out of the Bible, and that's one of the bits he cut out. But he didn't do it to Matthew 24. And the text in Matthew 24 is unassailable that Jesus said that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. So you see, there were people around in the 4th century who didn't believe in predictive prophecy and cut words out of the Bible. And then along came Westcott and Hort, who took those ancient texts and produced their new Greek texts with just so many omissions from the New Testament. So we've got to make a choice, brothers and sisters. Are we going to follow the mutilated manuscripts of the minority text or believe the Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, that's a choice we've all got to make, and it might affect the Bible versions that we use. So let's just finish up, going back to Genesis. Um, New Testament quotations from the book of Genesis. I've got a list of just over 120 quotations in the book of Genesis Sorry, in the New Testament from the book of Genesis. That's about two and a half quotations per chapter through the book. But let's break that down. There are more than 120 quotations then in the New Testament from Genesis, about two and a half quotes per chapter. 42 of those quotations are from the first three chapters of Genesis. That's an average of 14 quotations per chapter. 34 of them from Genesis 4 to 11. That's 4.2 quotes per chapter. 38 from Genesis 12 to 36. We're down to 1.5 quotes per chapter. And the remaining 10 are from Genesis 39 to 50, the period of Joseph. Less than one quotation per chapter. Just look at the focus of the New Testament. It's on Genesis, but it's on the early chapters of Genesis. The foundations of faith. 
where all our first principles start in those early chapters. And Jesus and his apostles go time and time again to the creation, to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent, to the sin, to the curse, and so forth. That's the emphasis of the New Testament. There's our 39 books of the Old Testament. How many of them are quoted in the New? As far as I can establish, all but one. Somebody can find me a quote in the book of Esther, I'll be thrilled. But all the others are quoted in the New Testament and therefore endorsed by the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. And what about the Lord Jesus Christ himself? All those in orange, he quotes from. I think it's 27, 27 books of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes from and calls scripture and, and accords the honour that he accords everywhere to his Father's word. If we accept the views of modern man, we've got to reject all this biblical evidence. We've got to say that Jesus and Paul got it wrong and made mistakes. Or is it actually modern man that's got it all wrong? Well, we've each got to make the choice. Who do we believe? I know where I stand. I stand four square with the Bible. So tonight, very briefly, we've looked at the compilation of the books of the Old Testament, the 39 books. This class was originally prepared for Bible class at my own ecclesia when we had a series of five classes on inspiration. And it was followed the, the following week by Brother Matthew Baines from my ecclesia who did the corresponding class on how the New Testament scriptures were compiled. Brother Matthew has studied Greek and he's as into the New Testament as I am into the Old Testament. It's a really first-rate class and if any of you want to follow up tonight by listening to Mother Ma Brother Matthew, I'm going to leave that slide on the screen uh, and there's the link to the video of Matthew's class and I assure you, if you spend uh, three-quarters of an hour listening to that, you won't be disappointed and you will learn the complementary side, the New Testament side of this subject that we've looked at tonight.